also rediscovered the Beowulf manuscript, mm-hmm. manuscript. It seems that he decided just to pinch these two leaves, <laughs> sort of to um, <laughs> give as a gift to his uh, colleague oh, in, no. uh, in, 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 in London, who was the keeper of records in the Tower of London. Oh, no. So sort of to, you know, gain favours <laughs> from him. <laughs> This was exacerbated by the fact that uh, the Swedes and the Danes, they were at war with each other constantly in the 17th and 18th century. Uh, you know, so they yeah, they were interested in, in these sources so that they could buff up their claims to land mm-hmm. and so forth and just, you know, also for national pride. So they would send, a- send agents to Iceland to acquire manuscripts. arrives in the nick of time and you know we often think about you know what would the situation have been had it not been for Arden. There was the great fire of 1728 in Copenhagen and Arden was reluctant to move his collection from his houses hoping that uh, he escaped the fire so it was really the last minute that he started moving his collection. What are you doing? <laughs> Have you no respect for this wonderful manuscript, our treasures? Are you just leafing through them with your bare hands? Welcome to Saga Briefs, where we're talking about the stories behind the sagas. I'm John, and this is the point where Andy would usually say that he's Andy. He's still Andy, but he's not here right now, since he's off driving around Iceland for a couple of weeks. Fortunately for me, he left the back door to Saga thing unlocked, so I'm in here recording solo and leaving half-empty coffee cups around the place, as one does. Since we're on a short break from Lockstella Saga until Andy returns, I'm taking the opportunity to bring you an interview from my own time in Iceland earlier this year. I was fortunate to spend a morning with Svonhild Oskodotr, professor and manuscript scholar at the Arne Magnusson Institute for Icelandic Studies in Reykjavik. Svonhild's name may be familiar to some of you from her work on the manuscript traditions of the sagas, particularly of Njal's saga. She's the author and editor of numerous important books and articles on the history of manuscript production and use in late medieval Iceland, including her recent book on the manuscript tradition of Njal's saga, co-authored with Emily Lethbridge. She's also the creator and driving force behind the Institute's International Summer School in Manuscript Studies. I spoke with Svonhild about the history of the Institute and the remarkable story of Arne Magnusson himself, a collector who managed to turn a one-year land survey into a ten-year odyssey to preserve the manuscripts of medieval Iceland, and then nearly lost all his work to a fire that destroyed Copenhagen in 1728. We also talked about the repatriation of Arne Magnusson's collection to Iceland in the late 20th century, the best and worst ways to preserve a manuscript, tracking down vellum leaves hidden in a foreign library, 
whether Njal's saga is really as good as everyone says it is, the value and the cost of digital archives, and, of course, the great white glove debate. If you're interested in learning more about the Institute and their vital role in the preservation of the Icelandic sagas, I'll provide links to the Institute's website and to some of Svanhild's work, assuming I can figure out how any of that works. You can also make plans to visit the Institute in person if you find yourself in Reykjavik. It only comes up briefly in the interview, but the Institute is about to open a new public education and exhibition space. It'll be worth a visit. I want to thank Svanhild for taking the time to meet with me, of course, and uh, for being so gracious to a sleep-deprived American who was, at the time, still in the throes of post-COVID grogginess. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Laxella Saga, but for now, here's my conversation with Svonhild. Thanks, and we'll be back soon. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, can you just start by introducing yourself and explain what did you do here at the Institute? Yes, I'm Svanhild Roskastotir, and I'm a research professor at the Institute in the Manuscript Division. Um, and what we do here in the Manuscript Division is working with manuscripts and the texts that they contain. We prepare editions of old texts. Um, we do our, well, I sometimes work on my own editions, but I'm also an uh, editor for other people's books. Um, and we do a certain amount of outreach. We have a summer school in manuscript studies um, in the summer, yeah, every summer in collaboration with our colleagues in Copenhagen and also at the National and University Library of Iceland. Yes, I suppose that's about it. And then I sometimes go to conferences and give papers on my research and so forth. Just for people who might not be familiar with it, can you tell us a little bit more about the Institute itself? sort of the work that is done here. I mean, it sounds like you're involved in a lot of it, uh, but the, the kind of work that this was founded to do. Yes, the, the current institute, which has a rather long name, the Arne Magnusson Institute for Icelandic Studies, uh, is in fact an amalgamation of five earlier smaller institutes, uh, but we have been big <laughs> since 2006. Uh, and uh, the, the institute comprises six divisions, um, so it's uh, uh, international outreach, uh, lexicography, onomastics, um, language planning and policy. So it's all this, these are all maybe sort of on the linguistic side. And mm -hmm. then we have the division of folkloristics and uh, the manuscript division. Three of these divisions, they look after important primary uh, sources, collections of primary sources. In the onomastics division, we have uh, a collection of place names, uh, rec records of place mm -hmm. names, which uh, the oldest records are more than 100 years old. Uh, they are wonderful. Some of them are um, come with maps that people have drawn when they were t explaining the place names uh, sure. on their farm and so forth. So that many of these are beautiful documents. Uh, the uh, folkloristics uh, division houses more than 2,000 hours of recordings of people telling stories, singing songs, uh, explaining about customs and so forth. And the oldest recordings are also more than 100 years old, more Gosh. than a century old. Wow. And the, but they're, st they're still collecting. Students mm -hmm. at the university still collect uh, folklore and that eventually enters also the collection. And then uh, in the manuscript division, uh, we are responsible for medieval manuscripts that were um, 
repatriated from Denmark, which we maybe talk about a little bit more about sure. later. Um, and we also have, well, there are also, there are manuscripts that have been added to the collection since. So we have uh, over 2,000 manuscripts in our vault. Uh, and in addition, we also have uh, several thousand document charters mm-hmm. uh, and copies of charters, which are also important. And some of these were collected by Arne Magnusson, yes? Yes. Um, uh, can you explain who he was? Because I don't know if a lot of people outside of Iceland are aware of how important a person he was. Exactly. Yes, he was a, a phenomenal uh, person. He was an Icelander. He was born in 1663 in the west of Iceland and raised there. Where was he born? In Kvennabrekka, in Dalir, in the Dalir oh. region, yes. But then when he was uh, a child, he moved to and was raised in Kvammur, uh, which is uh, obviously famous in the sagas, right. uh, where his uh, maternal grandfather was a priest. Uh, uh, his, he was called Ketil Jörundarsson, and he was had been a teacher at the cathedral school in Skálholt. Hmm. And was, uh, well, you could say that Ketil had antiquarian interests. He copied uh, manuscripts of, uh, old manuscripts of sagas. So Árni would, at an early age, have been exposed to manuscripts and, and mm-hmm. you could say, some rudiments of philology even. But he um, went to Copenhagen to study, as many people did, of course. This was at the time when Iceland was part of Denmark, so there was no university in Iceland uh, and the opportunity to study there for involved going to Copenhagen. And there Árni became involved with uh, uh, a man called Thomas Bartolin, the younger, who was a, 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 you know, a historian uh, and very keen uh, manuscript enthusiast and collector. And he, Sort of his, his benefactor, yes? Yes. Uh, he hired Árni uh, when Arden was just a student, uh, because Bartolin wanted an assistant who could uh, transcribe and translate for him uh, sources that he had uh, come across mm. and acquired, Icelandic sources. So that's um, the beginning, I think, of Arden's direct involvement in philology. And then uh, Bartolin sadly died at a young age, but Arden continued. He became uh, eventually professor at the University of Copenhagen. And he made trips to Iceland to collect manuscripts. The first trip he made on behalf of Bartolin, but then later on, uh, on his own behalf, you could say, uh, he got uh, an extraordinary chance to survey the country for manuscripts when he was uh, commissioned by the king, uh, along with uh, another Icelander, Páll Vítalín, the lawman. They were commissioned by the king to, to make a census in, in Iceland and also a land register. This, this yeah. was the trip that was supposed to be one year, yes? Yeah, and it was 10 years. <laughs> it really <laughs> stretched out. Oops. Uh, and um, so they, but, but this gave, because they had to travel to every farm in the country to, 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 you know, to record, you know, how many people lived there, what was the livestock, you know, how many acres was the farm and so forth. So that gave Árni a unique also opportunity to ask about manuscripts. <clears throat> And he was, you know, he, at the time when Arden was active in the in the early 18th century, the situation uh, on the continent was that uh, learned people had become aware of the fact that in Iceland you had sources for the history of Scandinavia, 
mm-hmm. northern Europe that was previously, you know, unknown to to uh, to the learned community in Europe. So there, um, it became a, there was a, a kind of a race for manuscripts, <laughs> um, and this was exacerbated by the fact that uh, the Swedes and the Danes they were at war with each other constantly in the seventeenth and eighteenth century. It seems, uh, you know, so they yeah they were interested in in these sources so that they could buff up their claims to land mm-hmm. and so forth, and just you know also for national pride. So they would send a, send agents to Iceland to acquire manuscripts. Obviously, the Danes were in a better position because you know the, da- the Danish king could just you know uh, issue a di- you know a dictum a decree you know mm-hmm. now you should send me the manuscript send all the manuscript to the royal library, but the Swedes really got some very excellent manuscripts that are still in mm. in Stockholm and Uppsala. Anyway, so so that's the the sort of the situation we have when Arni is uh, collecting. But what sets him apart, he got hold of many wonderful manuscripts, but what sets him apart from most other collectors is that he understood the value of even the most fragmentary manuscripts. Mm. Uh, So he would go after a single leaf, you know, and he would, he was also extremely uh, patient, you know, if he got maybe a few leaves from a manuscript that he he could see had been much larger, but had been taken apart, mm-hmm. then he would write letters to follow up on this, and he would inquire, we would ask people, do you know whether there was anything, was ever anything more to be had of that manuscript? Do you know where these, you know, some other leaves might have gone to another farm and so forth? So that's a <clears throat> This is documented in his correspondence, so it's it's very uh, interesting to read uh, the letters that he exchanged with Icelanders and other people about manuscripts. And, you know, you might also uh, then ask, okay, so how come people were taking these manuscripts apart? You know, mm-hmm. why is Ardne going after just fragment and scraps and so forth? Yeah, that that is the other aspect of the interest in manuscripts in the 17th and the 18th century that... When uh, they became, these sources became sought after, then people would copy the old manuscripts. They would produce new, fresh Mm. paper manuscripts that were clean and easy to read. And once they had done that, they would think, okay, we can just get rid of the old medieval parchment, dark, horrible, smelly manuscripts. (laughs) (laughs) So they, you know, that's, so Ordni, in fact, arrives in the nick of time. And, you know, we often think about, you know, what would the situation have been had it not been for Arden mm-hmm. and his uh, tenacity. So we're yeah. really, really grateful for yeah, that. Yeah, of course. And, of course, he was living in Copenhagen, so he moved all the manuscripts right. to Copenhagen. Right. And so the manuscripts end up in the possession of um, the, the Danish uh, kings, or I guess of the state, except for the ones not, that ended up in Sweden. Yeah, well, not quite, because, uh, yes, there were uh, a group of very important manuscripts in the Royal Library in Copenhagen, but Arnis collection is the largest collection of medieval manuscripts in mm. that exists, and they were not in the Royal oh, Library. They were his private collection. But, of course, he dies, as we all do. Right. <laughs> Well, and doesn't he also um, have to rescue them from a house fire at one point? Right? Yes, there was the Great Fire of yeah. 1728 in Copenhagen uh, that ravaged the city for several days. Mm. 
uh, and Artni was reluctant to move his collection from his house. He was hoping sure. that uh, yeah, they would escape the fire. So it was really at the last minute that he started moving the manuscript. But he he managed to move. Well, we think most of his medieval parchment manuscripts and many of his copies. Mm. Uh, his collection of printed books, which was wonderful, perished in the fire, and mm. so did some of the the copies. So yeah, so the, and after this, and this is in seventeen twenty eight. Uh, after this experience, he is really a broken man, and he dies in, in January seventeen thirty. Oh wow! So really, yeah. as a result, almost of this, almost of course, he, by that time he, he was sort of getting on, but yeah, I think it was a blow mm-hmm. that he didn't quite recover from. But he, uh, before he died, he, he made a will, he and his wife, um, and they bequeathed the collection to the University of Copenhagen, mm. which was probably a very good choice. Arden was thinking of how to preserve the collection and also how to do some research on the manuscripts, the scripts, and and more importantly, how to uh, uh, publish the texts that they contained. Mm-hmm. So that's how then the collection became uh, the property, or was looked after by the University of Copenhagen. And then there were the, then there were the manuscripts that were in the Royal Library. Sure, and but we're in Iceland right now. Yes, and so are your vaults. Yes. So how did they end up back here? Mm. Uh, that's a story that sort of begins in the 19th century with romanticism and growing nationalism. Hmm. Um, Iceland is, had been part of, well, the, the Norwegian re, uh, state or realm since 1262 and then passed on to the Danish kingdom um, when Norway also uh, did. Uh, they started in the 19th century, like many other uh, nations in Europe yeah. thinking about their own yeah. culture uh, and roots and destiny and wanted to become independent. The saga literature played quite a part in that because the sagas, especially perhaps the sagas of Icelanders, uh, they, for Icelanders at that time, uh, signified a golden age. Mm. Um, the, uh, uh, they described, you know, Free a uh, free people in a free country, and also uh, just the artifacts, the manuscripts themselves were also symbolic for uh, something that Icelanders had contributed to uh, culture in general, to world culture. Yeah. So um, when it came, yeah, then then uh, these uh, claims became stronger, and in nineteen eighteen. Iceland became a sovereign nation. Mm-hmm. And um, after that, the, the manuscript issue really got going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was felt by Icelanders that it was ridiculous now that they were uh, a sovereign nation, that they should not have the, the most prized uh, possessions, uh, the cultural artifacts. Uh, that they had produced and uh, they viewed them as theirs and uh, they should come back to Iceland. This took several decades Mm -hmm. um, of negotiations and a very heated debate uh, in Iceland as well as in Denmark 
for the Danes on their part thought that uh, this was not entirely well it was certainly not a foregone conclusion <laughs> that they should you know just relinquish their uh, hold on on these documents and these manuscripts but in the end uh, an agreement was reached in the uh, early 1960s whereby it was decided that the collection of Aude Magnusson should be divided in two, which is quite unusual, because Mm -hmm. as all archivists and uh, museum people will tell you, you don't want to split your collection. (laughs) The collection is a holy grave. But anyway, this was decided, uh, and um, Icelanders were also going to get some manuscript from the Royal Library. Uh, But again, uh, this was so disputed that uh, the agreement had to be uh, ratified twice by the Danish parliament mm-hmm. and it even went all the way before uh, before the supreme court because uh, you know the, the 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 agreement was challenged and in the end the supreme court in Denmark had to rule and it ruled that this was not against the uh, constitution mm-hmm. to 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 um, restore part of the collection to Iceland. So after all this wrangling, uh, it was in uh, April 1971 that the first two manuscripts came to Reykjavik, to Iceland, amid much pomp and circumstance. Yes. It came on a, a, on a, a naval vessel from Denmark, uh, and it was a, a, like a, it was a big, big feast day. Iceland has turned up at the harbor in droves. It was just a many, several thousand people. Mm-hmm. So that was a very memorable day. But then, of course, it took uh, more. It took more than twenty-five years to finalize the division. So the last manuscripts were came to Iceland in nineteen ninety-seven. So, when we think in terms of uh, nation states, the manuscripts have been divided, but the Arne Magnusson Institute is both here in Reykjavik and in Copenhagen. And so the collection is all in the the umbrella of one institute, is it not? No, not quite, because oh. there are two separate institutes. I see. So there is, in, in Copenhagen, the University of Copenhagen looks after their part of the collection. Uh-huh. Uh, in uh, And it's still called the Anna Maunanske Samling, the Anna Magnian Collection. Um, and it's... Uh, but here we have... A separate institute, so so um, the Arne Magnusson Institute in Iceland takes care of the manuscripts on behalf of the University mm-hmm. of Iceland, um, and we have co- cooperation between those two two institutes. Um, and uh, confusingly, we, they're both named the Arne Magnusson Institute. Yes, <laughs> I see. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. But uh, the Arne Magnusson collection is uh, we one of the collaborations we have is a collaboration on um, digitizing the whole collection. Mm-hmm. So you could say reunifying the collection in <laughs> cyberspace. That's Yes, I actually want to really talk about this project mm-hmm. because this is sort of one of the major undertakings that the Institute has, has uh, been involved with lately. How is that project going, the, the digitization of the manuscripts? Well, um, the uh, collection of Arne Magnusson uh, numbers around 3,000 items. Mm. Um, and to date... Around a third has been digitized, around 1,000 items, mm-hmm. uh, but it's around 150,000 pages. Wow. Yeah, so it's a lot of photographs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, and uh, it, it, I, I suppose you could always say that we wish it would uh, go faster. An aspect of this is, of course, that this is meant to be part of a catalog, an online catalog. Mm-hmm. Cataloging is quite time-consuming. Uh, and le- needs a lot of manpower, so sure. uh, we are not making as maybe as fast a progress as we would like with that. But you know, it's an ongoing. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't want to have progress. to do it twice, right? I mean, you want to sort of make sure that you get all the information in there and everything searchable and everything. Yeah, I mean, this yeah, is, the, yes, of course, it's it's a lovely like, resource. Yeah, it is. Um, it is wonderful, and uh, of course, it's yeah. You say you don't have to do it twice. That's correct, but in a sense, as with everything that's on online. It's an ongoing project, so you can add to them. And that's beautiful, you know. Sure. We have a wonderful catalogue of the collection that was produced by the Danish scholar Christian Kohlen um, more than 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's a very good catalogue, but obviously we are always finding, about, finding uh, new things uh, in the manuscripts and learning more about them. So it's good to be able to add that to a catalogue. So anything that comes to mind is a surprise that you found in the manuscript, not you necessarily you personally, but that the in this project, anything that's been sort of discovered in the manuscripts? Um, well, there are always new discovery. Mm. Uh, maybe not not related to this project, but uh, I must tell you because it's the latest uh, wonderful story in the world of Old Norse manuscripts. It's that uh, uh, a young scholar here at the Institute, who's doing his PhD uh, here, he sort of by chance, discovered that lurking in the British Library in um, a collection that had not had any, you know, uh, Old Norse scholars had not paid any attention to this Mm -hmm. part of the collection, he found two vellum leaves from a manuscript in the which is in the Anna Magnian collection in Copenhagen. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. It was a major. Scoop. Wow. Uh, and he could. Well, he's getting his PhD. <laughs> yes, and he <laughs> could show that uh, the two leaves. He could, he could identify the manuscript from which the leaves came, and he also had this uh, very plausible theory about how it how how this, these two leaves mm-hmm. came to go to uh, London, namely that um, Grimer Torkelin, whom people know as the person who discovered the Beowulf manuscript, mm-hmm. manuscript, he was an Icelander who worked in Denmark, and he was uh, on his way to, to England uh, in the 1780s, and it seems that he decided just to pinch these two leaves, <laughs> sort of to um, <laughs> give as a gift to his uh, colleague oh, in, no. uh, in, 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 in London, who was the keeper of records in the Tower of London. Oh, no. So sort of to, you know, gain favors <laughs> from him. And that's how these two leaves ended up, you know, oh, in gosh. the library. So, yeah, there are sometimes <laughs> wonderful stories like this. Yes. That, oh, that, my uh, goodness. Any chance that they're going to get them back? The British. I know the British um, Library does not let no, go of its treasures. They I'm are aware. notorious, so I'm, I'm not aware. too optimistic. <laughs> so, if we, I assume we've come a long way from someone being able to just help themselves to a few pages from the manuscripts. <laughs> um, what is the process of uh, cataloging and preserving a manuscript? It's uh, it's a little bit more complicated than just sort of putting it in an envelope and putting it on a shelf, uh, because we have to think about preserving these not just for the present but for the future as well. So what is that process like? Yes, um, 
if we think about, you know, if you were to bring a manuscript to me and and say that you were interested in donat- donating it to the, to the Institute. Speaking of which, I've got one right here. <laughs> <laughs> then I would take it to our conservator um, and uh, she would first put it into a quarantine mm. and make sure that there are no pests uh, that come with the, with the manuscript. So one aspect is pest control. <laughs> but uh, apart from that, uh, the important thing in storing the manuscripts is to keep um, the humidity and the temperature stable mm. and uh, at a certain level and to preserve the manuscripts in good boxes, preferably you know, lying down, you know, not, on, you know, not upright in, mm. on the shelf. Um, so it all aims at um, causing the least stress to the books. So ideally they should sleep in complete darkness <laughs> in stable conditions and not be opened very right. often. Right. But now I've also heard, um, and I don't know how widespread this, this theory is, but that, um, that manuscripts, uh, many of them, especially the vellum manuscripts, benefited from being handled because the oils in people's fingers, that it kept them supple, it kept them from aging. I don't know how true that is. Um, I, I've read that as a theory um, about manuscripts. I, I don't think there's much in that theory, yeah, actually. Yeah, because I know people but, wear gloves usually when they handle them. Yeah, but the, that's, it's good that you bring up the gloves, because now conservators say, no, don't use gloves, mm. please. Uh, you know, clean hands that have been washed and, and, and uh, with soap, and the soap has rinsed properly and so forth and the hands are dry they are preferable to gloves mm. why well the main thing is that when you're wearing gloves and you can test this yourself you take your fa- favorite volume of poetry out of your uh, bookshelves and uh, and start thumbing through them with gloves <laughs> you realize that you have so little control mm-hmm. of your you know you don't you you lose the feeling for what you're doing to the book Mm-hmm. And this is true also in case of manuscripts. Obviously, paper manuscripts are much more fragile than, than parchment manuscripts are. But still, uh, when you're wearing gloves, you are not aware of the damage you might be doing to, uh, to the book. Mm-hmm. It's also, I suppose, a factor in this that uh, the gloves, you know, they are made from maybe cotton that has been treated with chemicals, they are maybe washed with detergents, you know. Mm-hmm. So difficult sometimes to control what chemicals are in, in contact with the manuscript. Mm-hmm. So now we 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 have a strictly non no gloves policy. But it's <laughs> it's sometimes difficult because people you know gloves have also a symbolic value sure. because they show you that you um you value this mm-hmm. uh, artifact highly. Mm-hmm. You respect it. So sometimes when we are seen on Icelandic television, you know, handling manuscripts without gloves, people people phone in and say, "What are you doing? <laughs> Have you no respect for these wonderful manuscripts, our treasures? Are you just leafing through them with your bare hands?" And so we are always having to explain that we are actually doing this on the advice of experts. Mm-hmm who tell us that this is the way you should handle them. 
I can't think of a greater compliment to the Icelandic people than that watching a television show with the manuscripts, they would call in concerned about the preservation techniques yes. of the manuscripts. Yeah. I cannot imagine any other place where that would be the response of a, of a viewing audience. <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, so we talk about uh, manuscripts once in a while on the podcast. We don't go deeply into it because neither Andy nor I am expert in the field. Um, I made my way through a paleography course uh, in grad school. And I, that's about all I can say about that course is that I, I, I survived it. <laughs> um, but we, what we mainly address is the challenge of differing manuscript traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, when you have one manuscript of a text, Beowulf we brought up earlier, um, it's in some ways very easy right? because that's the text. It must be the text. Yes. Uh, now, the fact that it almost certainly represents only one of a number of traditions surrounding that story in that text, that solution, that problem goes away when nothing else survives. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Uh, but in the case of the sagas, uh, there are quite a number of them where either multiple fragments have been found or where stories have been uh, interpolated from other sources or where there are, in fact, just different manuscripts of the story. Mm-hmm. What is the role of a, uh, a manuscript institute in helping to guide us to the best version of a saga? Or is that even a wrong question to be asking? No, it's a perfectly good question. Because one of the things what we do is producing editions of texts. And it's in the editing process that all these things uh, really come to the fore. The role of, you know, when somebody is uh, uh, editing a saga, they, you know, they need to survey all the manuscripts first see what what's out there mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they will compare the text of the manuscripts to see whether there are indeed different traditions or different versions of uh, of the saga uh, and how do you how do you you may ask how do you you know how do you compare them well the traditional method is looking for what was called errors <laughs> um, so I think the the word error is you know it's quite loaded. So mm-hmm. uh, in modern times, uh, variance is usually yeah, quite loaded, isn't it? We, we prefer to use the word variance or variations and so forth. So 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 that so you try to chart where the the manuscripts start to disagree mm-hmm. on the text. Um, in the nineteenth century, you, you know when the 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 discipline of philology was sort of developing. Uh, very much um, in the classics, in fact, in editions of classical text, Greek and Roman, the desideratum was to arrive at the original text. It was sort of envisaged that it had to be at some point one clean copy that all the other copies that you were in possession of would ultimately go back to. Mm-hmm. We now uh, know, especially maybe also with medieval literature, at least that's the field that I know, we, we are aware that there may not even have been one clean copy. <laughs> um, there might have been, uh, from the beginning, two or more copies. So arriving at one uh, archetype or one ultimate text, the author's text, is perhaps not so much what we are after, but we would like to uh, explain to the users of the editions as well as we can how the text developed. 
So if sometimes we can arrive at, let's say, three main branches. That's the case with Eilsa and Njolsa, for instance. Mm. That we can see that very early on, we have three branches. So and, and we can trace all manuscripts that have survived to one of these three, mm-hmm. which is a uh, small rivers <laughs> flowing. <laughs> right, Tribute, tribu- tributaries. Tributaries, yes. yes. Um, I, I was, uh, when you were saying this, I'm thinking of uh, something that uh, David Benson, who's a professor of mine at the University of Connecticut, said once. Um, he was working on the tradition of Pierce Plowman scholarship, mm-hmm. which is so built on this sort of manuscript, the stemma tree of, yeah. of the different manuscripts. Yes. And his ultimate conclusion was that when you start looking for those manuscript traditions rather than at the manuscript, mm-hmm. you're not thinking medievally. Right? No. That a medieval reader didn't concern themselves with whether there was a variant manuscript somewhere else. What you read, this is Ale Saga, right? Yes. It's, it's what is in front of you. It yes. is the story. Yes. Now, there may be another way of telling that story, but that doesn't concern you when you're reading this story. Right? So that the, the diplomatic edition is very useful and almost necessary for modern scholarship in some ways that we have a common text mm-hmm. to speak from. But it it... Is some is somewhat removed, sort of one more level removed from how a medieval person would encounter that manuscript. Exactly, and the recent trends within philology are much more. Well, we speak about the material turn in philology, sometimes also named the new philology, and it has focused much more on individual manuscripts and also on the environment that where they were written, where they were read. Mm. and so forth, and the reception of the text in certain periods. Uh, and the manuscripts can often give us wonderful information about that. Mm. You know, you can see when you start looking at the whole manuscript, not just the text of the saga, but also marginal commentary and so forth, you can see reactions to the text uh, at a certain period in time, a certain mm. point in time. So manuscript scholars are now much more looking at that as well as, of yeah. course, um, producing editions of the text. That's I mean, so it, yeah. I mean, in some manuscripts uh, of uh, yeah, Gretesa, uh, you will have a comment in 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 the margin. Goder Katvar Gretir. Gretir was a great guy. Um, <laughs> in in. Uh, in some manuscript of uh, a 16th century manuscript, if I remember correctly, of Njolsa, uh, there's a comment on murder Valgarsson in the margin. Fare han bölvaður, you know, damn him. Yep, is the root of all evil. <laughs> so uh, that's wonderful, I think. That's so funny. I, we we had a, a, a listener recently uh, write into us because we had a debate, uh, Andy and I, as to who. Uh, if there is sort of a villain, right, an antagonist mm-hmm. uh, to Null Saga, whether it was Hagrath or uh, Mort, uh, and I said it was Mort, uh, mm-hmm. and someone wrote into us and said uh, that Morth is so detested that for almost 600 years, no one in Iceland was named Morth, that it, the name was killed off yes. for centuries because of the hatred of this character, yep. <laughs> which is just, A, wonderful as, again, a <laughs> testament to how important the sagas remain to people, but also means I'm right, which is great. It's always <laughs> to my benefit. Uh, <laughs> but that's great. Damn him is a wonderful... That's, um, what, I'm, what I would love to see starting to happen um, is... And I, I realize that this is sort of... We're coming dangerously close to saying that the foreign reits are um, in danger of becoming an obsolete scholarly resource. <laughs> Uh, or at least some of the older ones. 
but uh, to see editions that include things like marginalia, right? That I think we are starting to see that. You'll find uh, ones that'll footnote uh, marginal comments. Yes. Uh, and I love that, but it's it's so difficult sometimes to track down that kind of information. I mean, damn him is a fantastic addition to thinking about Nelson. Yes. Well, people have had high hopes about the electronic editions also in, in that respect. Mm. That, you know, somehow you could better mediate the immediacy of the manuscript through uh, an, an electronic platform. But that's still not good enough because uh, if you hold the manuscript, and we who are so fortunate mm. to be able to do that from time to time, we realize how difficult it is to convey the aura, if you like, of a manuscript. Each manuscript is an individual. Mm-hmm. That's what I tell my students, you know, just like every person is unique. So every manuscript is unique. And they smell and they are, you know, they yield to your touch in a certain way and so forth. And, mm-hmm. you know, electronic editions are not going to help us with that, right. sadly. Right. <laughs> but having said that, I think it's a very good thing that people are becoming more aware of the marginalia and other aspects of the manuscript so that they can at least uh, attempt to describe it in their editions, whether it be in a printed book or on screen or mm-hmm. online. Uh, that's a good thing. Yeah. And I think also, you know, you mentioned the uh, Fortnerate edition. Um, interestingly, the Sagas of Icelanders were, you know, the first text that appeared in that series, mm-hmm. um, Egil Saga. It's now almost a century yeah since uh, that volume appeared. But of course, we need a new edition within the series. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that they will be, the new editions will be different, I think. I think we will pay more attention to the different traditions of the saga, so there might be more multiple text editions. Mm -hmm. I myself have done some work on Njálsaga and the manuscript tradition of Njálsaga with my colleagues. And... uh, it is clear, I think, that we would really much, really like to publish separate editions of, mm-hmm. say, the Mödrvallabók text, uh, and then also uh, the text that is contained in the manuscript called Gráskina, and also the manuscript called Reykjabók. We are very fortunate in uh, the case of Njálsa in that we have several really old, really early mm. uh, nearly complete manuscripts of the saga. We believe that it was composed around 1280. Mm-hmm. Uh, the oldest preserved manuscripts are from the beginning of the 14th century, so yeah. only about a couple of decades later. And that's unique because f- for many other of the sagas of Icelanders, you are kind of piecing together texts mm-hmm. from fragments and so forth. So the tradition of Njolsa is rich and it is varied and it would be wonderful to open up the variation and the richness more completely than mm-hmm. has been done in uh, the editions to date. You're telling me that the Fornery series that I've painstakingly put together <laughs> over the course of the last 15 years or so is, is going to be out of date sometime in the near future. Well. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, I would say that I hope in the near future, but these things take time. <laughs> of course they do. Of course they do. <laughs> um a little while ago, we were talking about people calling in to complain about the way manuscripts are handled. What do the sagas mean, not just the manuscripts, but the sagas as stories mean in modern Iceland? Um, I, I feel as, and you know, I'm obviously coming from a different place, but I feel as though I've seen a shift in the last 12 to 16 years since I've started coming here 
in the way, not just the way they're presented to outsiders, but even in the way they're thought of culturally. I don't, I don't know that I would have seen a play of Nyal Saga being performed downtown 16 years ago, or maybe not in the same way, where it doesn't appear to be for a tourist audience. It appears to be for a local audience. Um, what would you say is, is sort of in 2022 or thereabouts, uh, where, what is the place of the sagas in modern Iceland? It's a big question, I realize yes, this. It's difficult to gauge, really, uh, and especially perhaps for somebody like me who is so close to to the research field. So I think sometimes we overestimate, certainly I think the, the knowledge that people possess mm. of the sagas. We are sometimes... I think we, as we are, I say we at the institute, we're maybe sometimes worried also that the the way they are presented or used in schools perhaps is not conducive to young people's interest in the sagas. You hear that for many a teenager, you know, it's just a, a chore to have to read, you know, Gisla Saya, where all the names begin with a thorn, and, you know, how are you going to keep track of all these genealogies, and wow, it's so boring, and then you you don't understand all the words, and, you know, the, it's, it is difficult <laughs> to, <laughs> everything that's in the core curri- curri- curriculum, I think, in schools is in danger of uh, maybe... Uh, being looked at as something that's boring and mm. not something you want to do. At the same time, of course, there's a lot in popular culture that ultimately goes back to old Norse culture. Sure. You know, there are uh, Netflix series, there are computer games and so forth that th- these same uh, teenagers are mm-hmm. enjoying. Uh, so how do we perhaps make the connection between the two? Can we do that better? Mm-hmm. Uh, we are uh, next year. Uh, the institute is mu- moving into new premises uh, oh. here on campus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where we will have a an exhibition space. Very nice. Yes, we are re- really very much looking forward to that, and we see that also as an opportunity to perhaps address young Icelanders better, mm-hmm. to introduce them to the manuscripts and to this culture and to the history of the Icelandic language also. There are so many fascinating things mm. that, so many fascinating stories stories that you can tell that we have not been able to do because we've just not had the uh, uh, the circumstances really or the, yeah, to do it. But yeah. we are going to put uh, a lot of effort into that. It does sound like the situation is somewhat akin to the way um, American and British schools teach Shakespeare. Uh, where uh, the plays that are chosen are not necessarily the plays that are going to speak to younger readers. You know, sure. I mean, I know a uh, an anthology that I've used in a college course. The Shakespeare play they chose was King Lear. Yes. Which is a lovely play. Yes. But it's a play about the fear of obsolescence. It's a play about an old man Indeed. coming to grips with his <laughs> mortality. And yeah. it's... It's not a play that is going to speak to an 18-year-old. No. Um, and there are much better texts for introducing that and much better ways of introducing that, looking at language, looking at uh, traditions uh, yep. in how the texts have been yes. have been passed on from generation to generation. It sounds like it's a, it's a similar set of problems. I think so. Uh, and it's so important, I think, to have Icelanders, maybe in, in especially young Icelanders, to, to uh, realize that 
you know, they are stakeholders mm. in this. It's it's their heritage. It's also the heritage of people who moved to Iceland. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, you know, we own this. This is we own this together. But how do you, how do you get people to see that and engage with it mm-hmm. and get you know get them interested in it? Yeah. I think that's the challenge. And the institute will undoubtedly be playing a role in that, especially if you're opening up to the public more yes. with the exhibition. Yes. That's lovely. That's, that's the plan. Wonderful. Yes. <laughs> But but you mentioned yeah you mentioned plays and and of course I think people are aware of the sagas uh, and their importance mm-hmm. in the cultural history and in in the independent struggle as well so I think they are proud of them mm-hmm. even though they sometimes perhaps say oh I don't know I'm not an expert you know they are maybe a little bit shy of right. this uh, culture but. They, I think, value it. Mm-hmm. Well, you said, you know, if people in 1971 are lining the docks to cheer the arrival of the first two manuscripts, I mean, that's that, that right there is an indication that the, um, the the material culture of the past is very highly thought of, is very highly prized. Yes. Um, even if the stories themselves maybe aren't as much of interest to younger readers, um, yes. there's still that sort of reverence for the physical objects. I think so. Even though uh, 1917... One is now over 50 years ago. I know. So so uh, the situation is, I think, has changed quite a bit. There's mm-hmm. Also, there's so, much, there's so much else that you could be interested in. And in 1971, also, a debate had been raging for many years. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, the newspapers had been full of um, reports about, you know, how the dispute was going between the Danes and Icelanders. So people were really kind of fired up uh, about it. And then after the matter had been settled uh, and Icelanders could rejoice that they had had some sort of victory, mm-hmm. you know, then you just, you know, you start to think about different I things. I see, I see. I think that's a little bit the, the <laughs> challenge we have against. You almost wonder if, uh, if the decision had gone the other way and the manuscripts were still housed in Copenhagen, whether there'd be more national interest because the manuscripts haven't been returned yet, yeah. <laughs> whether it would sustain, I'm not saying that would be a good thing, but would that have sustained a national interest in uh, in the manuscripts, in the sagas, if they hadn't managed to get them back? Is there some, some complacency? Yes, there's a certain amount of complacency there, I think. But but having said that, uh, our minister, minister of culture, she has kind of... Um, raised the stakes again mm. uh, for she has uh, approached uh, the Danes, the Danish government uh, about the issue of the manuscripts mm. um, she has opened the question we could say she has opened the question of whether perhaps more manuscripts should be returned or how we could better collaborate on the preservation and the promotion of the collection you know, which the collection was um, inscribed on the memory of the world heritage list that is uh, one of the UNESCO uh, yeah. uh, world heritage lists in 2009. And this was done, done on, on a joint application by Denmark and Iceland. Really? Yes. So that was, I think, a signal that, you know, these two countries intend to keep up the good work and, mm-hmm. you know, preserve this mm-hmm. uh, heritage for the world. 
Um, but we, of course, have to, you know, deeds have to follow words. Uh, and um, Lily Alfredsdottir, the Minister of Culture, she has sort of, yeah, she, she, she has, as I say, she wants to open discussion with Denmark on how we can do this better jointly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Uh, and I, when I say that uh, there's some complacency about the manuscripts being back, I also want to say I, in four trips to Iceland, having now spent several months of my life here, I have never yet met a person who lives here, whether native or immigrant, um, who doesn't know something about the sagas. It's, um, there's, it's certainly, while, while the interest may not be where those of us who study them professionally might hope, I don't think I've ever met somebody who just didn't know anything about them. You know, even if they say, "Oh, well, I've I've never actually read one," they still have a favorite. Yes, that they still have a character <laughs> who speaks to them. Right, that they've heard the stories, they know them. In some ways, it almost feels like they've gone back a little bit to being oral stories. Mm-hmm. That they hear the stories mm-hmm. from others rather than sitting down with a copy of the text. Yes, um, and that is a wonderful thing, and that that is a living tradition. I think. Yes. And of course, that brings me to the question that I ask everyone I talk to for the podcast: Do you have a favorite saga? Uh, and if and I realize that question, you know, maybe you may get a different answer on different days. But um, sitting here right now, is there anyone that c- comes out to you as a text that if you if you had to hand a saga to people and say this is the one to read? Yes. Well, when I'm recommending sagas to others, I often recommend Gisla Saga mm-hmm. because of its kind of whodunit element. That's my favorite to recommend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I think I would say now uh, that my favorite is Njolsa just because I've spent quite a lot of time with it. Sure. Um, and it's, of course, the longest of the sagas and it has so many wonderful aspects to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've read it several times and each time it's, it's I, I see something new. Mm-hmm. I... Each time, also, I think I, I, my focus, I focus on different characters, and I love the fact that Nyalsa has so many, also minor characters that mm-hmm. are so interesting. Even just one of my favorite characters is uh, Atli, one of the the uh, laborers at at Berthorskvall. You know, it's, it's a kind of an enigmatic person who makes a brief appearance and mm-hmm. he's killed. Mm-hmm. But he is really like a no fuss, strong, silent type <laughs> guy. <laughs> so just taking one character like yeah. that, who is just a, as I say, is a really just makes a very minor appearance, but is still painted uh, somehow so that you know he he just. You, you connect somehow to this character. Mm. You, you think you know how he, what, what he was like, you know. Right, right. I mean, there are so many of them in Elsa, yes. too. I mean, there's um, uh, uh, the poetess. Um, yeah. Uh, Thorhildur. Yes, thank you. Um, yes. Who is is uh, dumped by her husband at yes. a wedding, right? Uh, because she's known for her, her sharp-tongued poetry. Indeed. Which, of course, I mean, how many sharp-tongued poets are there in the sagas? But, you know, it's coming from a woman shaming a man, and that's a, yes. a that's an unacceptable thing. She's phenomenal. But she's there for you know half a page, yes, uh, and yet you can't forget her. Indeed, I mean, she's an amazing character. Yeah, Amundi the Blind, mm-hmm. right, taking revenge mm-hmm. for the death of his yep. father. Um, it, this appears for only one very short chapter, yes. and yet is this indelible character, and is the site of the only, I think, explicitly identified miracle 
mm-hmm. maybe in the saga. Mm-hmm. Right? There are a couple of things where they say, well, there's you know, uh, Scarpathen being bur- half burned and mm-hmm. half not, and the child being protected by the um, by the blanket except for his finger. But this is the one where they explicitly say right, that a miraculous thing happens right there on mm-hmm. the spot, right, in him physically, mm-hmm. um, and then it goes away, mm-hmm. right? and he just goes back to being who he is. This, it's amazing how much is in that saga. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know it, it does sometimes feel like an obvious answer, but it's such a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, so, this has been a delight. My pleasure. Thanks. Oh, <laughs> Fyrir sér alvaran Hann rauður loginn brann